I'm sitting in the studio and I'm looking at an image. My colleague Tom Faber made this image. You know the artist Damien Hirst, who created that piece that's a shark suspended in formaldehyde? It's kind of inspired by his work. This is my um, Damien Hirst sculpture of Winnie the Pooh. Oh, this is very good. Um, wow. I just feel like you could see these in a gallery. Yeah, they're just sort of like floating Winnie the Poohs. They do look like they're um, kind of floating in formaldehyde, like the shark. Tom's our gaming critic. He writes a lot about technology and the future. And the trippy thing about this image is that it looks just like something Damien Hirst could have made. But he didn't make it. And Tom didn't either. The image was entirely auto-generated by artificial intelligence. Tom just typed a prompt into a website. It's called Dolly. The prompt says, Damien Hirst, sculpture oh. of Winnie the Pooh, cut in half, suspended in formaldehyde. It's got almost all of that, but none of them are cut in half. No, that's a lot. <laughs> You're so, asking one yeah. thing too many <laughs> from this thing. <laughs> Dolly is spelled D-A-L-L-E. It's a portmanteau of Wally, the Pixar robot, and Salvador Dali. And this software is part of a new trend in digital technology called AI-generated art. This program can create basically any picture based on any prompt. To literally pluck any random idea from your imagination and type it in and see it generated within five, ten seconds, it, yeah. it feels a bit like magic. And the implications, I feel like we're only just beginning to untangle. Today, I speak to Tom about some of these implications. He wrote a cover story about this for FT Weekend magazine, and he thinks AI-generated art isn't just a fun internet fad. He thinks it's going to have a big impact on a lot of different creative fields. Then we talk about deep winter cooking. I've invited on the writers of our beloved recipe column, Itamar Srulovich and Sarit Packer. They are also known as Honey & Co. They give us a ton of ideas for comforting meals in the coldest months. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Tom, hi. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Lila. It's great to be back. So we are here to talk about AI-generated art. Maybe a good place to start is, can you explain what AI-generated art is? Sure. The simplest way to explain it is AI generation tools. It's a software that understands natural human language. So you type in a sentence, anything from your imagination, say a pig in the style of Van Gogh, mm -hmm. and it should be able to create a relatively convincing approximation of that using a huge amount of images which have been scanned from the internet. Mm -hmm. which have all been processed through an algorithm and kind of spat back out at you. And it's pretty impressive what it can do. It is. Impressive is an understatement. It mm. feels kind of like I'm living in the future when I use it. Um, and uh, the timing of this feels especially good because I keep seeing friends posting these AI-generated images on my social feeds. Um, where would our listeners have seen this? I think memes on social media were most people's introduction to this mm -hmm. technology. They definitely were for me. And I think a big pleasure of seeing this technology, which in many ways could be very transformative in the worlds of technology and the world of art, mm -hmm. has been 
the stupidity of some of the things that people have done with it. Uh, you know, everything from Jesus ordering a takeaway pizza, you know, <laughs> he chose pepperoni, it seems like, to right. a Rubik's Cube made of peanut butter and jelly. You know, right. the, the ideas that people have uh, are hilarious and it's been great fodder for memes. An important thing to keep in mind about AI programs like Dolly is that they can generate any image. You could type in four-year-old's drawing of the Gettysburg Address, and it'll show a clumsy crayon drawing of Abraham Lincoln at a podium. Or you could type in Queen Elizabeth shopping at Walmart in the style of Monet. That one's actually pretty good. AI-generated art has been around for a while, but it's only really managed to go mainstream in the past year. The thing that stuck out to me in your piece is that AI was struggling to generate a human face, and now you're saying it can create almost anything you ask it to. Like, it's happened so fast. Um, And I'm curious how it happened that fast. Um, The technology has been bubbling away for a few years. Mm -hmm. So the first DALI was announced beginning of 2021, and it was just a kind of tech model. People weren't allowed to access it. Mm-hmm. And then a year or so later, um, Dali 2 came around and that was the one that made the big splash because suddenly right. they were letting people use it. And the difference between the first and the second Dali was really striking as well. They trained the AI on a much, much larger data set of images. Mm. So its results were much, much more convincing. The images are so convincing that actually professional creatives have started using the software for a bunch of different tasks. Like artists and architects use it to quickly visualize an idea. Or filmmakers will use it for mood boards. Graphic designers use it. In some ways, it does a lot of work that we would normally pay artists and graphic designers for. So here's one I just made today. Uh, This is... um... This is mm-hmm. Christmas cards with holly leaves and berries, lino cut in the style of William Morris, who's a British designer, artist, poet, very famous for his sort of recurring natural motifs used on wallpapers and all that sort of thing. And I really yeah. like William Morris's style. And I thought, could you make a Christmas card? And I think these look exactly like something he would have done. <laughs> well, the cool thing here is like, okay, so... I don't know. I mean, like if you are looking to create a Christmas card by yourself, but you have no artistic ability, but you kind of have a sense of what you want it to look like. These are kind of beautiful. Like you could really take this and and download it and then export it onto a Christmas card and have done a good job. But it wasn't made by an artist. It was made by this algorithm. A hundred percent. Yeah. One of the artists who I spoke to described it as it's like being the art director for a yes. team of artists. Wow. So the vision and the editorial direction are yours, but yeah. the creation of the image is down to the app. So the natural next question is whether AI generated art will put a lot of artists and designers out of work. A lot of what you hear of what gets the most volume is a sort of slightly hysterical reaction of, oh my God, this is going to replace artists and designers and everyone's going to be out of a job and Mm -hmm. all hail our robot overlords. Mm -hmm. And I think emotionally, this is coming from a really understandable place. Yeah. But I think the answer is a lot more complex than that. 
And there's also lots of artists who are choosing, instead of wholesale rejecting this technology, they're saying, okay, well, actually, I can use this as part of my practice. And if there are parts of it that I don't think work or that I think are unethical, let's try and fix those Mm -hmm. rather than let's reject this wholesale because it's here. Like the Pandora's box is open. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not going to close again, Mm -hmm. you know, so let's deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So there's like um, so many directions we could go. I kind of want us to focus on AI being used as an art form. And you said in your piece, which I really liked that like every new technology has threatened to make the art forms before it feel irrelevant, but never really did. Right. Like, oil painting starting didn't end drawing or like photography didn't end painting. Um, People still draw now. And so I'm curious about how you think AI, I mean, I doubt that it will make previous forms like irrelevant or obsolete, but how it might change art going forward. I think what excites me is that it's very hard to imagine how it's going to change exactly Mm -hmm. but we can be sure that it will change yeah i think of the technological revolutions in image making that have preceded this i think the one that is most instructive is is the camera probably Mm. because the camera was created by scientists as a way to sort of reflect the world around us and then it got much better The first Kodak camera made it sort of accessible to mainstream audience. And then artists started sort of subverting the technology Mm -hmm. and using it for the purpose of creative expression. Mm -hmm. And now it exists as its own artistic discipline. So I think part of how artists use technology is in breaking it and in using it in ways that it's not meant to be used. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're going to see happening with this. And I don't know what's coming, but I'm very excited to see it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it asks some of the same questions. I mean, when the camera was invented, it was, there was sort of this question like, well, the the artist didn't create all of the things within the piece of art, right? It's like a depiction of what they're seeing. So is it less like art. Mm. And there are some underlying questions here about like, if a machine is helping you make art, is it less of yours? Well, I mean, but that conversation's not new. Is no, it? not at all. It's, it, it's, it, it's been decades that we've been going to art galleries and looking at artworks, which were made by an artist's team, mm-hmm. which were made by machines, mm-hmm. which were, you know, a urinal that an artist took and wrote his name on. Right. I mean, even Raphael and da Vinci had apprentices painting. Right, exactly. Just like Jeff Koons does. Mm -hmm. I think the idea that the quality of an artwork is defined by how much time went into making it or how much skill went into making it, I think it's an old narrative and I think it's already being displaced. Yeah. And I think this technology will just accelerate that displacement. And I I certainly don't think that art will be any the worse. Okay, so Tom, it sounds like we are just scratching the surface on how we can use this tool. And also computer scientists that you spoke with think that it's going to be very common and pretty mainstream very soon. So I'm curious about the short term, like where is this going in the near future? Two things are basically already possible, but it's just a question of the computing power. 
One is to create 3D models、mm. using AI image using AI generation. So that would be things that you could use in making special effects for a movie,、um, making a video game,、mm. um, architects models. Yeah.、Um, 3D is one. The other is video. Yeah. Very soon, these you'll be able to use these tools to say, make a five minute. Film introducing a foreigner to Miami Beach, or something. could you say like、and、in the style of Steven Spielberg? You could, and <laughs> I don't know if it would be great would at、happen. the beginning, but <laughs>、right. it will get better. Yeah, I think it's quite an interesting moment for AI image generation because although yeah, we're seeing those AI generated avatars all across social media, the hype cycle has slightly moved on. Yeah, specifically from Dali. Um, the circling media vultures like myself have sort of moved on a bit, <laughs> and now it's like, okay, let the tech guys and the artists duke it out. Like, what's this actually going to be? And,、mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see. Yeah, and is this just sort of like a fun fad of something that we just play with for a couple of months,、um, or does it have the lasting power that that it seems to that it could?、Mm, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not uncertain about that. This is、really? not a fad. No, like I think it's really instructive to compare this to NFTs,、mm-hmm. like or or to crypto,、um, which is this technology which there was a lot of buzz around and a lot of investment in, but people were always a bit like, yeah, but what do you actually do with it?、Mm-hmm. Like, where? How would I actually use this in my day to day life? This is very different、yeah. because since this technology came into existence, millions of people have organically found uses for it. Right. Everyone who you talk to is like. Oh yeah, I've been using this to do X, Y, and Z, and I was like, "Oh God, I was only doing A, B, C. <laughs> I'd never even thought of X, Y, Z." You know, and this is、That's、happening、so、all、cool. the time. Yeah. So I really don't think it's a fad. Wow. Okay, Tom, come back in a year and let's talk about where it is <laughs> <laughs> and、um, sure and、uh, whether it happened. Thank you so much. This was so fascinating. It's a pleasure. I would happily talk about this forever. <laughs> It's officially deep winter in the northern hemisphere. In dating, they call that cuffing season, but in my home, it's cookbook season. It's cooking season. It's that time that you turn on your oven and you slow roast something all day, or that you do a very time-consuming project like make many pounds of marmalade. There's just something very primal about hunkering down and starting a fire and feeding. Of course, the thing you want to be making depends on who you are. I love soup. Sarit <laughs> doesn't so much, but I can eat soup, you know, all day, three times a day. I think it's the most comforting thing. Yeah. Oh no! See, he's saying all the wrong things. That's Itamar Srulevich and Sarit Packer. They're the London-based chefs behind Honey and Co. The Honeys run some of the most beloved Middle Eastern spots in London: a restaurant, a grill house, and a gourmet shop. And Itamar and Sarit are both business partners and also married. When you go to Honey and Co, it really feels extraordinarily comforting. It's like you're eating the best version of a home cooked meal. They have dips and breads and sides and stews that fall off the bone, tagines. 
So needless to say, there is nobody better to talk to about winter cooking. Itamar and Sarid, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's always a pleasure. I am thrilled to have you both on. You write one of my favorite columns at the FTR recipe column. And uh, you're just one of my favorite things about your recipes is that you're just so good at flavor and texture and making cooking fun. And today I'm hoping we can talk about cooking through uh, these dark winter months that we're entering. Yeah, it's the best cooking time. It really is. So to get into it, like, what would you say big picture is your overall approach to winter cooking? I think the key to sort of winter cooking, and, you know, again, that's not, so it's going to argue, but I adore (laughs) leftovers. I love leftovers. Like I would cook something in, I don't know, November. Uh And all the way until March, I will just have like leftovers and leftovers and leftovers. (laughs) I'll have like uh, a little stock leftover from something. I'll make a soup. And from that (laughs) soup, I'll make a risotto. And from the risotto, I'll make uh, some rice cakes. I don't know. I just want to continue the same meal for three months. No, I absolutely Sorry, disagree doesn't with that. Does that agree? No, I, yeah. I, I disagree on so many levels with that. <laughs> but it's good. It's a good deal. If I overcook, then he'll have it for lunch the next day and I just will have something fresh for dinner. I mean, I love winter food. We, we cook a lot of um, kind of slow cooked dishes, yeah, where a piece of meat on a bone, some kind yeah. of pulses or lentils or any kind of root vegetables and just nice and slow until everything melts together and is kind of absolutely delicious and the meat just pulls off the fork. As you can tell, the honeys don't always agree on everything, but that really works for them. Business is good. It's booming. Let me indulge Itamar with um, follow-up questions about soup, if that's okay. Um, I, I find that it's very easy to make like a fine soup, like an okay soup. I'm curious what if you have any sort of secrets to making an exceptional, flavorful, like deep soup, as opposed to a, eh, it's okay, kind of a soup. Okay, yeah. I think for the longest time, even as a professional chef, I didn't know how to make good soup. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a knack to it. Yeah. It is, it's an act of balance because soup needs to be, on one hand, it needs to be interesting enough for an entire bowl. You know what I mean? It can't be samey. Yeah. So it needs to have like layers of flavor. Mm-hmm. And how do you create layers of flavor in a soup as opposed to a sauce? Is it similar? Well, I think you need to you need to have a good base. Like you need to start with a really good base of soup. So if you if you're using like so often you'd use sort of the holy trinity onion, uh, carrot, celery, but you really want to cook it so slow. I also do want to ask you about. Meat. So you mentioned sort of having like a, maybe like a shank that falls off the bone. Mm. Um, Can you tell me briefly about how to do that right? Sure. So a bone is just very nice for cooking slow because there's so much flavor. Cooking on the bone is so important. It's just better. Yeah. (laughs) So much better. But you start with a piece of meat. It can also be just like a dice of something. I would Mm -hmm. make sure it's got some fat to it. It can't really... You can't really use a lean piece. That's not the that's not the point of a stew, really. Yeah, um, yeah. So a nice fatty bit, ideally on a bone. 
brown it a bit, take it out, then a whole load of vegetables, like Itamala is saying. It's like the, the, the trinity of uh, celery, carrot, onion, that carries you through so many good things. Uh, but also dried mushrooms is good. Little um, shallots, you know, the little kind of small onions that are really nice. Obviously, whole garlic cloves, anything like that. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. The other thing I, I, it is my genetic obligation to ask you about is um, stuffed cabbage. <laughs> you have this mm. incredible recipe for stuffed cabbage um, mm. on the FT, stuffed with beef and rice and prunes. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, so many cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, but across the board have vegetables stuffed with meat and rice. And uh, stuffed cabbage is like my favorite food. My grandmothers both made it. My Armenian grandmother made it. My Greek grandmother made it. And uh, it epitomizes like that cozy winterness to me. Um, yeah. This is what I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's like you said, so many of these cultures with the stuffed vegetables, but it yeah. seems like that if you grew up having it, it just touches a certain bone. Yes. This is food that is very caring, you know, it's mm-hmm. very uh, handsy. Yes. You know, someone took a long time to make it and much care and attention to make it. You know, at least sort of once a year, we take the time to do vine leaves or to stuff, you know, the cabbage and things like that. And Yeah. And do it as a specialty just to keep to keep it going. Yeah. I agree. It's about taking the time and... And like really paying attention. And it's nice to do it properly. This is winter food for me, but also I want to say winter salads. Let's take a moment for them. (laughs) We should. (laughs) Like normally you'd think salads is like the the summer vegetables, tomatoes and and cucumbers. But winter has all the beautiful uh, bitter leaves and lettuces that are super refreshing, refreshing and crunchy. And, and of mm. course, let's not forget citrus fruit. Yes. Could you give me a, like what would be a salad that you would whip up? You go to the farmer's market and they have these sort of winter root vegetables and bitter leaves and citrus. Yeah, so what we, would you do? We, we're kind of, we can be a little bit chefy about it. You get like all <laughs> of the allowed. beautiful uh, winter vegetables, the root vegetables, uh, even simple things like, Carrots, celeriac, you know, all of the different turnips and radishes that come up in the winter. Mm-hmm. Just sort of slice them as thin as you can, sprinkle them with salt just to soften them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then dress that with a little bit of lemon or orange juice or clementine juice. And it's just, you know, exactly what you need on the sides of that really brown stew. There was one more thing I wanted from Sarita Nitamar before I let them go. I wanted inspiration. What sort of energy do you, you know, some people, they cook every night. They have to cook for their family every night. They have to cook for themselves every night. They're getting a little bit bored by it um, or tired of it. How do you recommend bringing, like, excitement into the process of cooking again? I have a weird kind of thing where I like to, (laughs) it's like a fetish. I like to finish things that are in the cupboard. You know, so um, <laughs> right. Itamar thinks it's very funny, but I hate it if I have a bottle of something that I bought because I was trying one kind of, I don't know, yeah, let's say one kind of Japanese recipe and I bought something. Right. So then I'll look at this bottle and think, okay, I have to like 
think what I'm going to make that is going to use this <laughs> Like sometimes it's just about like looking at what you have in the house and saying, oh, I haven't used this for ages. Maybe I should make something. Yeah, that's a really good structuring kind of agent. Itamar and Sari, thank you so much. This is very inspiring. And please come back again. We would love it was to. Thanks, a pleasure. Pam. Thank you so much for having us. We're so hungry now. So, hungry. <laughs> so, so hungry. hungry. We're going to have dinner yeah. straight away. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have stuffed cabbage. Perfect. I have put some of my favorite Honey & Co. winter recipes in the show notes, including one that just came out, a tomato and rice soup. It's one of Itamar's favorites. I've also included the names of their cookbooks. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, my colleague Claire Bushy joins us. Claire recently had treatment for breast cancer, and she looked into how much the American healthcare system considered her life to be worth in dollars and cents. Then we are talking about Meghan and Harry and Harry's new memoir, Spare, with Henry Mance. Don't fight it. We're going there. It's going to be fun. If you want to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a lot about culture and our episodes on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including a really good deal on a print offer. I really like that one. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks, as always, go to Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.